This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 377. And you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some with a little trick. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hello. Hello. Uh, This is Daniel Glass. I'd like to welcome you to another episode of the Daniel Glass Show right here on Drummer's Resource. And probably don't recognize the way that I'm speaking, but I'd like to mention that the reason I'm talking this way is because this today's show is going to be a tribute to one of the greatest bands that ever straddled the land and truly one of my favourite bands of all time. I'm speaking, of course, about the great Spinal Tap. So there it is, Spinal Tap. Now, why, you might be asking, am I doing an episode, a podcast episode about Spinal Tap? Well, Spinal Tap play somewhat heavily into my own history and lore as a musician because not only am I a huge fan of the band, not only did they influence me in a lot of different ways, uh, I'm a fan of the concept, fan of of the movie, of course, Um, but I actually had an amazing opportunity to audition for Spinal Tap back in 91, and that's what I am going to talk about today with you guys on the show. It was kind of an amazing experience, and I think it'll make for an interesting tale So sit back, and let's actually go back to a time before the movie, which came out, I think, in 1983. It was filmed in 1982. Let's go back even further. Let's go back to the 1970s, uh, when I was a kid growing up in Hawaii. Now, of course, in the 1970s, there was no internet, there was no YouTube, there was no access uh, to the kind of stuff that we can access today. And um, as a, as a, child who was intensely interested in music, in drumming, in rock and roll, uh, I uh, grabbed those moments where I could to uh, listen to interviews and other sort of things that surrounded the music that I loved. So I was a huge Deep Purple fan, a huge Pink Floyd fan. This is um, in the, you know, starting in the early 70s, but um, I've mentioned on previous podcasts, by the late 70s, I was in my first bands, uh, one of which was a Black Sabbath tribute band. And um, we played a lot of classic rock and Deep Purple and stuff of, of that nature. And I remember um, back when, when I was a kid, late on Sunday nights, they had these really cool uh, syndicated programs on um, on late night radio, late night FM radio. One of those programs was Off the Record with Mary Turner. Uh, another program was uh, Interview with Jim Ladd. And, you know, Jim Ladd was this super cool DJ who had this really breathy voice, man. And he would get these, you know, they would get these big rock stars on the program. And as a kid, I would, you know, I loved those interviews. When The Wall came out, they had a four-part interview uh, with you know, David Gilmour and Roger Waters, uh, they interviewed, you know, all the huge rock stars of the day. And, you know, I would, as a kid, I was supposed to be in bed and I had my little portable, um, transistor radio, I kid you not, with a little antenna that you could pull out. And I would lie in bed, you know, at 11 o'clock and midnight 
uh, when these programs aired, and I would listen to these interviews, and I would fantasize about being a British rock star, <laughs> essentially. And so what I started to do was to imitate the English accent of, of these interviewees and, uh, you know, sort of play fantasy interview. And I would make up these, these characters uh, and, you know, on Sunday afternoons where I had to do my chores, every week my sister and I had to vacuum and we had to clean the bathroom and, you know, those were our weekly chores. And I would, to get through the monotony and the drag that was those chores, I would invent fake British rock stars, pretend I was a fake British rock star. So you can imagine my surprise in 1982 or 1983 when Spinal Tap came out and here's a bunch of American comedians pretending to be British rock stars. And they not only pretended, they created an entire lore, a history uh, of this non-existent band, Spinal Tap. They, you know, and they so beautifully covered it in this, what, you know, the, the first time the word rockumentary was used was about the movie Spinal Tap. And of course, in addition to the late night interviews and the cool bootleg vinyl LPs that I would go buy at the record store that were illegal recordings of some of my favorite bands, you know, in, in concert where you, you, it was all terrible quality and all that, um, you know, there were, there were the late night movies at the university, University of Hawaii had this uh, physical sciences theater where they would show, you know, the kids are all right. Uh, the Who movie, they would show Song Remains the Same, Led Zeppelin. They would show uh, Jimi Hendrix live at Monterey. They would show the Rolling Stones, Gimme Shelter. Uh, all these cool rock and roll films that had come out, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s. And they would show them as like midnight movies or late night movies at the university. And so I, a lot of, you know, early seminal experiences of my uh, of my youth were going to those movies. So between the interviews and the movies, you know, I, I when Spinal Tap came out, it was it was like a perfect storm for me. I think I was a sophomore in high school. And so I fell in love with this movie. I completely thought it was the coolest thing ever. And um, both my sister and I loved it because we, we were radio kids. We grew up listening to the radio from morning till night. We, you know, we were into all that stuff. And so we started memorizing bits of dialogue from the movie and, and all this kind of stuff. So fast forward, um, in, in, uh, and I go to college, go to college at Brandeis University in Boston. After four years, I decide I'm going to be a musician. I move back. Uh, eventually find my way to Los Angeles, and I'm at the Dick Grove School of Music, and the year is 1991. And one day, I'm at school, and this is back before anybody knew about cell phones. There was a payphone at the school, kind of in the community area, and in this community area, they had bulletin boards where different kinds of um, opportunities would be posted. Say there was a TV show that needed a band for sidelining or, um, you know, people were auditioning, needed a drummer or a guitar player for my band or whatever, those kind of bulletin boards. And literally taped up onto the wall next to the payphone, I see a very familiar looking icon. And that icon is this sort of skull head with these giant, you know, devil-like horns coming out of it. And all it says on this flyer is, drummer died, need new one. I swear to God, I'm not joking. Drummer died, need new one. And of course, in my mind, that is said, spoken with an English accent. And I'm like, are you kidding? And there was a phone number. I said, is Spinal Tap auditioning drummers? And of course, the joke with Spinal Tap 
is that their drummers were always dying, you know, because uh, they're they're making a play the, in the film. They're making a play on you know Keith Moon and John Bonham, uh, expiring, choking on vomit, of course, uh, you know, and it's it's difficult because you can't dust for vomit. One of my favorite lines from the movie. So anyway, you know, I, I'm like, this is too good to be true. So of course, the first thing I do is jump on that payphone. I call the number, and I find out that. Indeed, Spinal Tap is going to be auditioning drummers on Halloween. This is in October, and this is just a couple days away. On October 31st, uh, Spinal Tap is, is going to be auditioning drummers. Now, not only are they going to be auditioning drummers, but they're doing it at the L.A. Coliseum. This is the place where, you know, the USC has played for years. It's a 80,000, you know, seat stadium. And I'm like, are you kidding me? What, you know, what's the story here? So the only thing the recorded message said is show up at the LA Coliseum at this time on October 31st, Halloween, and be prepared to play along to the song Big Bottom. So I go into high gear. I'm like, this is my moment. You know, I want to, I, I want the opportunity to play with Spinal Tap. And um, I, I, the first thing I do is I know that it's going to be a right-handed drum set. I'm a left-handed drummer. So uh, I have a friend who had a double pedal, and it was a right-handed double pedal. But my goal was to spend some time practicing Big Bottom, of course, the classic song Big Bottom from, uh, you know, talk about my mud flaps, my girl's got them, uh, full of great lines. And, uh, and, and, you know, I start working on the song Big Bottom on a right-handed setup with a double pedal. So I'm using my left foot to play the slave pedal, the, you know, the secondary pedal. And uh, I'm working on this tune. Then the next thing I got to do is I call my sister because my sister and her husband were living in L.A. at the time. I said, you know, Rachel, we got to go down to the Spinal Tap auditions. And she got all excited. And so we started plotting and planning our wardrobe. So the same guy who had the double pedal, he was kind of a rocker dude. He had leather pants that he let me borrow, and uh, they were probably pleather pants, but, you know, it, it was the look. And so, needless to say, we get all this together, and on Halloween Day, uh, 1991, we drive down to the L.A. Coliseum. We had to meet at, like, I don't know, 11 o'clock in the morning or something, um, and we get in line, and there's all these drummers down there, and we, of course, try to get there early because they say we're going to only audition 50 people. So we get in line, and everyone's dressed to the nines, and no one has any expectation about what exactly is going to happen when we get in there. And um, so, you know, we're in line, and we, we get registered, and I, 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 I made it. I made it into the audition, and my number, my number was 22. Oh, I was number 22. And, I, and so we pin our numbers on it. They're sort of the numbers that, that looks like when you're uh, running a marathon or something like that. And we're ushered into the L.A. Coliseum. So in one end zone of the L.A. Coliseum, they have built probably the world's largest drum set. It was Yamaha. And this thing was insane. It was a monster of epic proportion with gong drums, you know, up in the air, 50 cymbals. Of course, it's a double bass kit. Thank God, much to my uh, uh, great relief. And what we realize is that this is going to be a total media 
um, you know, media uh, blitz. Uh, there are there are a bunch of chairs for the 50 drummers set up at about the 15 or 15 yard line, let's say. Remember, the drum set is in the end zone. It's on a platform that's like, I don't know, eight feet high, 10 feet high. And um, and and there are 50 chairs and behind in front of the 50 chairs is a table. And indeed, the members of Spinal Tap, basically the three guys, Christopher Guest, Michael McKean, Harry Shearer, um, that's where they're going to sit and do the audition. And behind the 50 chairs are like a hundred cameras from every news outlet imaginable. And what we realize or what we learned during the course of this is that Spinal Tap is, is planning to drop a new album. And this is, this drummer auditions are a promotion to, uh, get people aware that this new album is coming. And of course, probably was going to be a tour with it. So I'm going, man, opportunity to get in Spinal Tap and I can, you know, maybe, you know, tour the world with them and how cool would that be? So, um, you know, the the auditions begin, quote unquote. And uh, amazingly, they did indeed uh, trot 50 people up on stage to play the song Big Bottom. And you're not really playing with, with Spinal Tap, you're playing to a recording of the song, a drumless recording. Um, but it was, it was a, a pretty amazing day. And of course the three guys came out in costume, in wig, in full wig, in full character. And, um, they're, you know, kibitzing back and forth with the auditioners. So, um, it, you know, uh, and by the way, if I haven't mentioned this yet, which I haven't, I have photographs, people. I have photographs and they are going to be in the show notes. Uh, I used to have them on my website. And then when I moved my website, uh, they got um, deleted, but uh, the photo, the page did. But I'm going to rebuild the page. And I also have found some um, news clips from this day. And uh, so... Um, you know, Channel 4 or whatever did a, a little piece about the auditions. Uh, I don't think I'm in any of those pieces, uh, but I'm going to post links to them so that you can get some sense of what this day was all about. And it just, it was as epic as you can imagine. And uh, so when I got up there, I was like, you know, screw it. I'm going to, I'm going to get into character and really talk to the guys. Uh, and so I said, you know, uh, it's really an honor and a pleasure for me to be here auditioning today for you. I've been a huge fan of the band since Shark Sandwich, which, of course, you know, had had received a two-word review in the movie, Shit Sandwich. I said, oh, I've been a fan since Shark Sandwich, and I just really, you know, I, I relish the opportunity to, uh, to, to play for you today. And do you have any advice? And they said, well, just remember, number 22... It's it's one two three and then four, you know. So it was <laughs> it was, uh, it was very funny. This is kind of ridiculous banter. Everybody being in character. So man, I went for it. I gave it my all. I thought I played a really great audition. Some of the people that were auditioning really could barely even play the drums. Some people were were pretty good. I, I certainly thought I was in the top tier. Uh, another person who was at the audition, of course, my sister and brother-in-law were there. We were all uh, in character, in, in costume. I had kind of long hair myself at that time. And if I blue dry my hair, it straightened out. And I had these like 
weird kind of oval Ian Pace style glasses. So I looked a lot actually like Joey Ramone. That was sort of what my character looked like. But um, another person that was there was my friend Abby Travis, who uh, was also a student at the Dick Rove School of Music. She was a bass player and ended up doing a lot of really great stuff in LA. She ended up playing, I think, in the, uh, in the Bangles, uh, of course, the famous all-female band from the 80s. Uh, she ended up doing that gig and a bunch of other really cool gigs and has, has her own stuff out. Uh, anyway, she, Abby was down there dressed up as a, as a fairy, uh, literally as like uh, she donned this fairy outfit. And she was one of the people, I think she auditioned, even though she's not even really a, formally a drummer. But uh, the reason I mentioned that is she'll play into this story a little bit later on. So the audition happens, get to meet the guys, took pictures with them. They were super cool. It was a really great experience. And um, that that was it, unfortunately, because as we learn, uh, th- there was indeed a new record coming out. That record was uh, Break Like the Wind, in which uh, it was really Spinal Tap's first major stepping out as a band. In other words, when the movie came out, the whole thing had been created for the film and it it was uh you know they didn't really play around or tour as spinal tap the whole thing just was created for the band but i think the movie really had become such a cult classic at this point say 10 years down the road 91 92 that they you know felt compelled to actually put out a real album and uh and you know or a second album i think the the the, the movie soundtrack was the first album but uh, anyway, they, they put out Break Like the Wind and um, continued, you know, and, and, and began to do their thing. And, and there was a concert, the concert on that tour, which they played in Los Angeles, where obviously where I was living at the time, was at the Universal Amphitheater. So needless to say, I never heard back from them, but they did end up using um, uh, Rick Parnell, R.J. Parnell, who was the original drummer in the movie, um, Mick Shrimpton was his name, Mick Shrimpton. And even though Mick Shrimpton dies, he he combusts at the end of the film, and they get Joe Mama Besser, Mick Shrimpton came back as his twin brother, Rick Shrimpton. So R.J. Parnell was playing Rick Shrimpton. And we went to the concert, we bought tickets, we, we dressed up again, I think we had an awesome time. Turns out, though, my friend Abby from the Dick Rose School of Music, they liked her fairy outfit and her vibe. And so along with, you know, the, the, the little people, the midgets and the Stonehenge scene, she was kind of one of these characters. And I don't know if she did the whole tour, if it was just the LA show, but she was sort of running around on stage during the Stonehenge scene. So it was kind of cool for her because she actually got to be part of the concert. So um, anyway, that was my experience. As I said, I have photos there. I've found some uh, news, um, you know, news stories, which I will post uh, all of this will be in the show notes page on uh, drummersresource.com for this particular episode. And I just, you know, Spinal Tap kind of the, the story goes on in in a few different ways, or I had a few different thoughts also that I would like to share, which is that Spinal Tap continued to be in my, you know, list of probably top five all-time movies. I watched it over and over again. I mean, if you if you talk to me, we can get into, you know, all the favorite lines, all the great lines. There's so many great ones from the movie. I'm sure everybody has their favorites. Um, but uh, it, it's interesting because the movie stopped being, I stopped watching it and it stopped being a favorite 
film of mine when I got out on the road with Royal Crown Review. And we, as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, we were touring, uh, you know, two, three hundred days a year from about 1995, 96 through about 98, 99. There was about a three or four year period in there where the retro swing thing was was off the charts and we were very much in high demand where we never stopped moving. And, you know, when you spend that much time on the road, uh, the glamour of touring, uh, of being in a band can really lose a lot of its sheen and you're just grinding it out every day, going to another city, doing your show, leaving, grinding it out, going to another city. It can be um, it can be exhausting. And suddenly, I remember one time we were, you know, in, I don't know, literally could have been in Cleveland. We were somewhere in the Midwest. Um, it was a gray, rainy, wintry day. I think we had the day off in some hotel, didn't know anybody in town, exhausted. Nobody was getting along with anybody. Uh, you know, things were just, uh, just looking rough, you know, and it, and it can get that way. The world can start to look pretty bleak sometimes when you're on the road. And uh, I remember somebody put Spinal Tap on uh, in either the hotel or on the tour bus or something. I don't remember exactly. But I just remember watching it. And all of a sudden, I sort of said, man, Daniel, you are living this movie now. And it is not funny. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's, it's real. Because in the movie Spinal Tap, part of what makes it um, such a compelling movie is that you know, they, they really develop these characters and take them through a whole dramatic arc. So they, yeah, they are these cock rockers, you know, who, who have, you know, the, the uh, cold sore on their lip and, and the girls are around and they're, you know, getting high and living the rock star fantasy life. And here's Nigel's collection of guitars and this and that and the other. But um, they also go through a lot of interpersonal conflict and, and, you know, Nigel and David, who've been best friends since they were lads, uh, end up, you know, breaking up and Nigel leaves the band. And by the time that the tour ends, uh, the, the band is in a, a terrible place and everything has fallen apart. So, you know, uh, that's, I think, one of the things that makes the movie so compelling is that you really love these characters and feel for them. Um, and, and it's not just simply a, 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 a shallow kind of portrayal of, of stereotypes. So, um, in any case, here I am sitting on the road, and, and literally a lot of these things from the movie had happened to us. You go, you know, every night you go backstage and they have, you know, food for your load-in, and sometimes they just get it wrong. And although people might think, well, God, you stuck up rock stars, and oh, you know, I don't get my brown M&Ms, really for most bands, you know, getting to the venue and maybe there's some food there when you've been driving and you have not eaten all day and you are not going to have time to eat before the show and you might only eat at midnight from some crappy fast food place before you drive for another eight hours, you know, that that's a, a big part of your day uh, to get somewhere. And there's food there. You can have a sandwich. Mostly it's just sandwiches. And so, you know, watching the, you know, uh, you know, I don't want olives, you know, with this in it and what is this bread, you know, it's like, oh, okay. And, and, you know, the, the scene where the band cannot find their way to the stage and you think, God, what a bunch of idiots. And they get lost backstage. Well, there are these theaters where there's winding hallways and elevators and it's like a myriad, you know, thing. And when you're in a different theater or a different club 
every single night after a while things start to blend together. Uh, the band's name getting misspelled, right? There's, uh, they, <laughs> they get called uh, on one marquee Spinal Pap, which is one of my favorite, uh, you know, misspelling Spinal Tarp, right? Well, Royal Crown Review, you can only imagine the manglings of, of that name, Crown Royal Review, um, you know, RC Cola Review, uh, you name it, it, it has been messed with. Uh, and I think the all-time great mangling of our name, we got to a venue, and the marquee literally said, Royal Caribbean Revenue. I kid you not, because the way we spelled the word review, R-E-V-U-E, like sort of a vaudeville-style, uh, you know, uh, review, a, 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 a presentation of a variety of entertainment, that's what a review is, uh, was always misspelled as review, R-E-V-I-E-W, which was, which was livable, but revenue, that was kind of hilarious. So, um, you know, just, and, and seeing the, the breakup of relationships and guys fighting and being unhappy with each other when, when it all began, you know, it was all this brotherly, fraternal love, and we're on this mission together, and now it's like we're not talking to each other, and all this kind of stuff. So, at that point, I sort of stopped watching the movie so much, because the joke had worn off, and the the, the, the ironic reality of it, I guess you could say, had, had set in, in a lot of ways. All right, so I'd like to wind up uh, my Spinal Tap podcast here with um, just a few other bits and pieces of stories related to Spinal Tap that have happened throughout my career that I uh, fondly remember, uh, you know, uh, being a part of. And the first is when Royal Crown Review had the opportunity in uh, probably around the late 90s to perform at the, um, the amphitheater at Magic Mountain. Now, for those of you who you know, our avid Spinal Tap fans, you recall it as the movie goes on and things fall apart for the band. Um, their their tour for Smell with a Glove goes terribly wrong. And, and by the time they get to the West Coast, you know, they start the tour in New York. By the time they get to California, Nigel has left the band and they're just performing as a four piece. And um, of course, Ian Faith, the manager, has also left the band. Uh, and Janine... Uh, David St. Hubbins' girlfriend has taken over managerial duties. So they're performing at an amusement park, which is amusing to begin with. But when they get there, they realize that they're on a bill with a puppet show and that the puppet show has received top billing. And so Janine, you know, says to David, if I told them once, I told them a hundred times, puppet show last and spinal tap first. You know, so then, uh, then you know, the band is upset, and she says, "Well, we we got the big dressing room. You know, we got the big size dressing room." And David St. Hubbins says, "What bigger than the puppets?" <laughs> you know, so it's great line, classic line. Anyway, they go on to perform, of course, Jazz Odyssey because they're looking for material, and Jazz Odyssey is Derek Smalls, the bass player's uh, big moment to step out, and it's the, the whole show is a disaster. There's nobody there, and the tour ends in smoldering ruins. Anyway, Royal Crown Review, I had been to this theater, uh, this amphitheater. It was kind of a, an epic place in the 70s and 80s for, for great concerts. Uh, you'd go to Magic Mountain, you'd run around the amusement park all day, and then they'd have 
actually really quality entertainment. And uh, my wife, who grew up in Southern California, saw a lot of really great kind of 80s bands there. Um, I remember when I was a kid on vacation in Southern California, we went to Magic Mountain and the band that was playing in the amphitheater was the Silvers, uh, who were a really cool kind of family band like the Jacksons. Uh, They had a couple hits, Boogie Fever and Hotline. I don't know if you guys remember those going all the way back to around 1977. So anyway, Spinal Tap is filmed there in 1982. I have, you know, I recognize it in the movie. It's it's great. And then uh, around 1998 or so, Royal Crown Review actually performed at that same amphitheater. And so that was an epic arrival moment for me there. Um, The other cool story I have is that... um, I got to know Harry Shearer a little bit uh, through uh, some some interesting winding circumstances. Um, as as many of you who follow Christopher Guest's movies, Christopher Guest, of course, is, is uh, Nigel Tufnell. He directed Spinal Tap, and then he went on to direct a lot of other great movies with that kind of ensemble cast that included David's, um, <laughs> uh, Harry Shearer and Michael McKean and, and a bunch of other folks. And one of those movies was A Mighty Wind, which was also a, a mockumentary about the folk scene, the folk music scene. And I had, I think I've talked about this before, grown up with a lot of folk music. And so a lot of the characters being satirized, the Thamesmen, they were essentially the Kingston Trio. And um, I can't remember, there was a, Ian and Sylvia uh, were a famous folk married couple, and they were satirized. Anyway, the, the Mighty Wind actually ended up doing a whole tour as well with all of these performers and character because, you know, you got to remember the music being created in these mockumentaries was actually really good music. It was satirical in nature, but it was, um, it was high quality. So it turns out that the bass player in the Mighty Wind house band that accompanied all those acts and did the Mighty Wind tour ended up playing bass in Royal Crown Review for a little while. His name is Steve Pandis. And so Steve knew Harry Shearer. And uh, because Harry Shearer is the bass player in Spinal Tap, Steve is a bass player, and so bass player to bass player kind of thing. So Royal Crown Review was playing in New Orleans and uh, when Steve was in the band, and Harry Shearer came down to the gig, saw the band, which was cool. Uh, and then maybe a year or two later, um, a, f- a friend of mine who is a publicist uh, was the publicist for Harry's wife, Judith Owen, who's actually a, a very accomplished Um, piano player and singer-songwriter herself, and she was gigging around town, and Harry was her regular bass player, and I subbed for, uh, I think, Herman Matthews on the gig. So I did, I actually think I did a couple of gigs with Harry on bass and his wife Judith backing her up. So that was really cool to have a chance to play with one of the members of Spinal Tap in a unrelated musical situation, but a cool situation nonetheless. And, uh, and finally, I just want to give a shout out to a couple of drummers who actually have gotten to play with Spinal Tap. I'm incredibly jealous, I'll just tell you right now. Uh, Greg Bissonette has pretty much been, although Rick Parnell was with the band on that tour that I saw them on in 1992, I guess. Uh, uh, shortly thereafter, Greg, Greg Bissonette kind of became the go-to guy, and he has done a lot of work with Spinal Tap. So I've become pretty good friends with Greg over the years, and we did a clinic tour in Australia a couple of years ago, and uh, I got to sort of, uh, you know, uh, ask all the Spinal Tap-related questions I could think of, in addition to the Ringo Starr questions, because, of course, he's been playing with Ringo Starr's All-Star Band for a long time as well. Damn you, Greg, damn you. 
Uh, and Todd Zuckerman, I just found out, uh, did a, some kind of a performance with Spinal Tap uh, for a television thing. I don't know if it was just a one-off. Uh, and this is funny because you get to see Todd as a much younger man. This goes back, again, to the 90s at some point. And... Um, and, uh, and that video just surfaced. So I'm always keeping my eyes and ears on what is going on with Spinal Tap. Uh, it has been a, a huge uh, influence in my life. It sort of filled a gap that I was already, you know, sort of creating as a, as a young budding musician pretending I was a British rock star because I just thought all that stuff was so cool. And to finally, you know, to have the chance to interact with them over the years in one way or another to to audition for them uh, is just a great epic moment for me in my career. So with that, I will I will say farewell from my own British rock star persona and wish you a really wonderful day from the Daniel Glass Show here on Drummer's Resource. Goodbye.